Hello, everybody. We are recording today's episode of Adapting the Future of Jewish Education on November 4th, 2022. And I'm having a conversation with one of my colleagues at the Jewish Education Project, Dr. Samantha Vinika Meinrath, about the uptick in anti-Semitism in society today. I wanted to have this conversation with Samantha because anti-Semitism is so much on the minds of all of us today. And I think we as Jewish educators need to realize that as much as we might want to avoid talking about this difficult topic, as much as it might seem like we're focusing on the negative aspects of what it means to be Jewish in America today, as much as it really is something that we might have thought we were past, this is really something present, not just in society, but on the minds of our young people today. Samantha's research took her in a path which she did not necessarily expect her to go, but she's become an expert in anti-Semitism, especially through the eyes of young people because she listened to them. She heard the stories that they were telling her, and not just the experiences they were having related to anti-Semitism in their so-called real lives, but also online in their virtual lives. And the fact that she's able to say categorically that the real life and the virtual life of these young people is one and the same thing is also a statement about our young people and where they are today. The conversation is both depressing in many ways because we're still talking about anti-Semitism, but in other ways it's extremely uplifting because it talks about what we as Jewish educators can actually do to help support and guide our young people today as they navigate this particular issue in society. This is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, a podcast from the Jewish Education Project where we explore the big questions, challenges, and successes that define Jewish education. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody. I'm here today with Dr. Samantha Vinika Meinrath, who is a lifelong Jewish educator and learner and serves as a Senior Director of Knowledge, Ideas, and Learning here at the Jewish Education Project. She's an expert on Jewish teens, Gen Z, experiential education, Israel, and questions of Jewish identity. And before long, you are all going to realize why I wanted to be in conversation with her today about this really important topic. Not only does Samantha come with her own interest in research and also on these particular topics, but she also spoke to teenagers and the learners to help answer many of the questions that she had, especially on this topic about anti-Semitism. And she's the author of a book, which you might be familiar with by now, called Hashtag anti-Semitism, coming of age during the resurgence of hate, and she's currently at work on her next book. I'm really appreciative of Samantha for joining us here today. Samantha, welcome to today's episode of Adapting. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I think I want to start with the point that I want to say that I don't really want to have this conversation in terms of like, I'm really upset that we're still here having it. And I sort of want to ask you the question of like, how do you think we got to a stage in 2022 that you and I are sitting here on a podcast about Jewish education, talking about something that has been around for thousands of years and something that we really don't want to dwell on all that much? It's so hard because anti-Semitism, as many of us have heard it referred to, is the world's oldest hatred. We know that it morphs and follows the Jewish people from place to place throughout time, throughout space, doesn't necessarily even need Jews in order to have anti-Semitism manifest in a location or in a society. And in the last generation or two in the United States, we've been in um, almost a really special, beautiful blip of history where we haven't had to focus on anti-Semitism. We've been able to talk about, as you put it, the the things we want to talk about. I would love to be invited to adapting to talk about Jewish food culture and ritual and mikvah and all the things that I love doing Jewishly. And instead, we're back here in this resurgence of anti-Semitism. 
So some of the questions I want to ask you today are going to be questions of general curiosity for me and I believe the listeners. And some of the questions I deliberately want to ask you are also things that I want educators to be thinking about because I think they're some of the questions that their students or their children ask of them as well. So excuse the next question, which might seem quite you know mundane in that in that circumstance, but like, why do people dislike Jews? The best example that I've heard or the best analogy that I've heard for why people dislike Jews comes from Ben Freeman, um, who's the author of Jewish Pride, um, a book that was published during the pandemic that I will give an unsolicited endorsement of right now. Um, and he described anti-Semitism as the equivalent of a boggart, which is a magical character from the Harry Potter universe that changes its shape to match whatever the person looking at it is the most afraid of. So for each one of us, it manifests our most deep-seated fear. And in so many ways, to be the Jew in society is to be the other, to be something that doesn't quite make sense within the context of so many other societal structures and tropes. We're a religion, but we're not just a religion. We're a people, but we're not just an, a different ethnic group because we come in all colors and backgrounds and have different languages. We are able to be whatever a society is or an individual is most afraid of or wants to stand in opposition to. We can be the capitalists and the socialists. We can be from nowhere and that's frightening, or we could be trying to embed ourselves in taking over. There's the, all the anti-Semitic tropes that we hear about Jews and money, Jews and power, Jews and controlling the world. As absurd as they might sound to those of us who know those things to be absurd, they're really real. And when people are looking for something to pin their hatred on, we're an easy target, a welcome target. We're not the only target. We stand with, again, other minority groups and other populations who are being othered today and throughout history, but we come up a lot. <laughs> So just for the audience sake, Samantha and I were on a webinar yesterday having a similar conversation, and I sort of set her up with that last question because I think the response is really a valid and a valuable response. And Samantha, I want to push you on something, and here I'm not just pushing you on an issue. I think I'm pressing some of the, the general Jewish communal organizational responses to some of these questions as well, and that is the whole notion of why are we afraid or why are we hiding away from the fact that many of these traditional canards against the Jews have their origins in Christian culture, in Christian religion, in Christian theocracy. And why don't we talk about that more overtly? Um, I understand we don't want to upset anyone, but heck, this is hurting us, I think, if we don't talk about it. And I'm, I'm concerned that your response doesn't include a reference to the origins of some of this Jew hatred, which I find really you know, at its core level, historically rooted in the Christian theology? That's such an interesting question. I recently taught a class all about the origins of the blood libel, the notion that Jews will steal Christians, particularly Christian babies or Christian children, to kill them and use their blood for rituals, particularly the Passover, Seder, the making of matzah from uh, this blood. Part of what I think, I mean, it's an interesting question about just society in general. And for us to talk about, well, a lot of anti-Semitism originates within the church and within Christianity. I don't think our Christian counterparts in at least most of, let's say, Northeastern United States know that anymore. I recently had the opportunity to um, travel to a Jewish community in Texas, and there it was actually a very different story. I very much heard people saying they're talking about this in church. I like People are saying that 
I learned in church that Jews have horns, Jews are cheap, Jews insert um, anti-Semitic trope here in a contemporary way. In New York, I don't necessarily hear that, even if perhaps societally it's kind of baked in. But I think you're right. We are not necessarily talking about it. I don't know if it's that we don't want to offend our counterparts and to say there are tremendous allies out there and many, many Christian denominations and churches that have stood up for the Jewish community. So to say, we're we're not forgetting what you did historically, feels like it might be canceling out good and allyship and partnership that is happening now. But you are completely right that these are where so many of these tropes come from. Yeah, and I think I was referring even more fundamentally to the concept of the Jews as Christ killers being some of the motivating forces for some of those stereotypes and some of those canards which developed over time as well. But I think you're totally right there. And I think some of these tropes are worth exploring because I have found as a Jewish educator that many people today, Jewish and non-Jewish today, will throw things out there and not realize often what the anti-Semitic undertones are of some of the harmful things that they're saying. And here I want to ask you a question because you you titled your book Hashtag Antisemitism um, because of the role that social media and popular media is playing in the lives of young people today. So talk to us a bit about what's taking place online and why did you decide to call your book Hashtag Antisemitism? So hashtag anti-Semitism as a title came about first as a little bit tongue in cheek. But um, as I doubled down in my research, I realized that even before COVID, but especially since the onset of the pandemic, there's no longer a delineation between online and quote unquote real life. What's happening online is deeply real, both in the lives of Gen Z, Gen Alpha now, but also for all of us, we're having this conversation via um, a virtual platform. Everyone who's listening to it is listening to it virtually, but we're feeling connected. We're feeling like we're part of the same dialogue. So I first want to say that the hashtag piece was we can't minimize the world of online. And particularly in terms of social media, that's where so much anti-Semitism in the lives of young people is playing out. While there are the in-person IRL, as they would say, experiences of physical intimidation or graffiti or incidents in classrooms, so much of what I saw and heard about came about in the online space because that's where young people are expressing themselves and saying just go away from it is genuinely not an option. They are online. They are on social media. And if we want them to express themselves and to see themselves as Jewish, not just in the two hours that we have them in religious school or in the two months that we have them in camp, but throughout their lives then we want them to be expressing themselves Jewishly online. And unfortunately, that means they're opening themselves up to online anti-Semitism. Tell the audience a bit about like some of the stories that you heard, because I think the beauty of your research was that you actually asked young people what their experiences of being Jewish were like. You were surprised by the amount of young people that reference anti-Semitism in their life, which led to the, the available material for your book. But tell the audience about some of the actual stories that young people told you about anti-Semitism as they're experiencing it in the world today. So sticking with the online space for a moment, one of the students who I really had the pleasure of getting to know is based in Ohio. She's now in her early 20s. She was a teen when I interviewed her and came from um, a unique interfaith background in that she was both Jewish and Romani. Um, she had half of her family that was Jewish and half that were part of the Roma people. And she discovered this identity and decided that she was going to, you know, what does a young person do when they find something interesting about themselves, make an Instagram account devoted to it. So she made an Instagram account about 
where she specifically was sharing anecdotes and information and all these things about her Jewish slash Roma background. And she was really excited to share it. I actually was originally interviewing her to get a multi-faith experience. I wasn't necessarily even ready to talk about anti-Semitism. And instead, as I think became the theme of me realizing anti-Semitism is so pervasive, what I got to hear about was the hatred she experienced. She posted a TikTok of herself learning how to make gefilte fish, because as one does, and it was a purely Jewish experience. It was a purely cultural experience. It was something fun. It was something joyful. And she immediately got hit first with a series of anti-Semitic statements, everything ranging from free Palestine, which in and of itself is not anti-Semitic, but to say, why can't we have an expression of something Jewish without immediately jumping to this space all the way towards really death threats, people saying, I wish that Hitler had killed both sides of your family in the Holocaust, because of of course, both Jewish and Roma people were targeted by the Nazis. I wish both sides of your family had died. I wish you were dead. And she wound up shutting down her account for mental health purposes, because she had said, I know they're not real, they don't know me, but to be woken up every day by these notifications and these DMs wishing death to my family, wishing me death, was taking such a hit on her psyche. And it's awful. It's awful to hear. I've heard about the in-person experiences um, where one young woman who I interviewed who lived in California was invited to a party. Someone asked the clarifying question, are you Jewish? And she said, yes. And uh, the kind, quote unquote, response, don't worry, I still like you. And was left processing and unpacking that with her of, what does that mean? I still like you. Was I supposed to be concerned about that. And then the same girl, um, when she went to college, um, you know, heard the uh, the pickup line, how do you get a Jewish girl's number? Check the inside of her arm. That's awful. It's so, so frightening. At the same time, I see experiences where using online platforms, Jewish young people are finding solidarity. They're realizing I'm not alone in this and Instagram accounts in particular are popping up where people can submit their stories of anti-Semitism and see I'm not alone or this account will tag your school in it without necessarily naming you if you're interested in staying anonymous to call out the school from a different angle and they're mobilizing using the resources of the crowdsourcing of the internet and of social media to take back these narratives. All right, you're raising so many questions for me. I want to make sure I, I don't miss any of them. The, the first one, there are people in the Jewish community today who are suggesting very, very strongly that what we are seeing now in America today is exactly the same that was taking place in 1930s Germany. And that if we are not being extremely, extremely cautious now and making statements now, that there is nothing that is going to save us later on because the warning signs are here just as they were historically or, or retrospectively in the 1930s. So how do you respond to something like that. First, just with empathy, I have to keep the educator hat on and to say that for those in our community who really, really feel that way, that is awful. It's such a state of anxiety to be in. I say this as I, I know you and I have uh, shared origin stories that come with Holocaust ancestry. I hear it and I feel it and I grew up with the story of knowing that my great grandfather saw the warning signs before others and got my grandmother out. I think what's different now is the position of where we are in society. In pre-Nazi Germany, in Russia, in the Pale of Settlement, anti-Semitism was institutionalized policy. 
we're not in that space right now. We have the partnership and the allyship and the support, whether it's government um, and other structures in society. That's not to say that's without problem. We can have a lot of conversations about polarization and extremism in our society. And will that support continue on both sides of the aisle for the Jewish community? We can discuss and unpack. But I think where we are right now, it's it's not the same. So I hear your response and I really do share your empathy. And then Pittsburgh happens and Poway happens. And just yesterday, there's an FBI warning in New Jersey. And this is getting real in terms of the violence is actually a real threat. And I want you to reflect upon Pittsburgh and the Tree of Life shootings as an educator, because in some ways, that was a turning point in terms of how we as Jews spoke about anti-Semitism in America, and in some ways nothing's changed. So how do you respond to something like that? So in so many ways it is the same. It's part of an ongoing narrative of Jews being attacked um, and Jews being made vulnerable. But I think Tree of Life was really a turning point for so many in the Jewish community. And there is that, again, lasting awareness that it could happen here. We, as we're recording, um, you shared, are within 24 hours of an FBI alert to all synagogues in the state of New Jersey saying, essentially, be on alert. And I, I really want us to make sure that we talk about Jewish choices, because I think there's a, it can go in any direction. I am speaking as we record tonight at a synagogue in New Jersey about my book. I had very much a sense that the correct response to this type of threat is that we're supposed to be defiant. And I am supposed to show up with my Jewish star necklace and my book, hashtag anti-Semitism, at synagogue tonight and say, no one will keep me down. No one will keep me from sharing my message. Like, we got this. And then I also definitely had a call from my mom saying, um, are you sure that you're going tonight? Do you need me to send someone with you? And then I'm thinking to myself, who exactly was my mom planning to send with me as this proverbial backup? Um, but we're making Jewish choices in the face of rising anti-Semitism. The choice might be that one of defiance to say, you told me I'm supposed to be afraid of being Jewish or letting the world know that I'm Jewish. Watch me go get the biggest you know, Jewish star that I can and put it over my t-shirt with Hebrew letters on it and run through the streets with my Jewish pride. And that's amazing. And we all applaud those who want to show off how excited and proud they are of being Jewish. And as educators, we love when our learners are proud and excited and we want to instill that. But I also want to give voice to the real legitimacy of someone who says, I'm afraid right now that this is physical. This isn't just someone saying hurtful words. It's not just bullying online. It's real potential physical intimidation and potential harm and the care and self-protection that comes from taking a step back is also a response to anti-Semitism that I don't think we can ignore. I think we as educators have to then think about what do we do and how do we deal with it, but we have to respect it. So the Tree of Life shooting happened four years ago, and we know there have been other violent incidents since then. And you've spoken about an awakening in the Jewish community since then and the vigilance and the security, which has all taken place. But there's something bizarre in the last couple of weeks, which feels really like only now is the rest of the world catching up. And it took Kanye or Ye and now Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, to actually raise anti-Semitism to social or moral consciousness in a way that Tree of Life perhaps didn't. And there's something particularly troublesome, or maybe there's something completely natural about it needing to take popular and sporting culture 
to bring issues of anti-Semitism onto the front page of not just media, but onto the front page and minds of the social consciousness of America today. So without going into detail either about Kyrie or Ye, why do you think pop culture now seems to be another turning point in the discussion about anti-Semitism in America today? So I'm still working on this theory, but I'm happy to test it out on you and I'd love to hear what you think. We couldn't do anything about Tree of Life. It happened and our world has been shaped in so many ways within the Jewish community by its aftermath. We could make our decisions about what vigils we were going to go to, which public officials we were going to welcome the um, sympathy of and how we were going to structure our communal spaces moving forward. We live now in a world of influencers where we can do something. We were able to mobilize and to figure out who are our allies to have this online campaign where so many celebrities and regular folks were out there saying, I stand with and support the Jewish community. And I don't know if to use the language of punishment feels very juvenile, but we're able to have an impact to say your um, endorsements are going away. Your partners are going away. This is not acceptable. And there's there's a power in having that agency. So put your educator hat back on for a second. And like, I'm telling you, the most common question I've been asked in the last couple of weeks by parents and educators alike is, should I tell my students or should I tell my kids they're no longer allowed to listen to, to Kanye West music anymore? And I'm telling you that I had this conversation this morning with my son. For those of you who don't know, he's now turned 13. He's had a bar mitzvah. He's had a Jewish education his whole life. And we happen to support the Brooklyn Nets who aren't doing too well. And he basically says to me when I tell him this morning that Kyrie Irving has been banned for a minimum of five games and a $500,000 fine for his endorsement of anti-Semitic um, literature and film. And his initial response to me was, sorry, Jonah, for throwing you under the bus, was like, oh, my goodness, the Nets are never going to win a game again. And, like, these are real conversations that I imagine educators are having, actually more pointedly, should be having with their young people today. And I'm wondering, like, you know, on one foot, what would you tell an educator if a kid comes to them and says, I'm having this real debate whether I should listen to the music or go support the Nets anymore? I am a really big fan of Chuva. And I think what's interesting in these cases is the perpetrators, both in the fir- form of Ye and then um, Kyrie Irving, have not shown any remorse. Um, we as a community, there's something to be said about taking on our Jewish values and how do they manifest. And if we were in an instance where I made a mistake, I said something deplorable, I legitimately am sorry and learning and taking this as a teachable moment, I don't think we're beyond beyond being able to redeem someone. But right now, both of the individuals that we're using as these examples have essentially, as we record, doubled down on their messaging and don't seem to really feel bad. So I would welcome it as a teachable moment. I personally, I will say, would not be listening to the music right now if it were to my taste. I recognize that I am, first of all, not of the demographic that was listening in the first place. And also that Ye has a tremendous influence on Gen Z and on pop culture. And to say that we're going to cancel him and he's done for good, there are some who are 100% going to say that and will never go back. And there are others who are going to say, I already downloaded it. He's not getting extra money off of it. So it's fine. And for me, I think it's again, where are we in the ongoing process? And what does that mean for each of us? 
It's fascinating. It's interesting as well. And previously in this podcast, I threw my my son under the bus a bit with the Brooklyn Nets. But I should say one of the the redeeming conversations that we had a few weeks ago was when we watched together the old movie School Ties that was set in 1950s America, uncovering some of the issues of anti-Semitism. It was interesting here in this conversation to hear some of those themes um, returning here in your conversation with young teenagers today. I do believe that as of this morning, Kyrie Irving has apologized. That being said, his suspension of five games being lifted was dependent on him apologizing and there's a whole story there about like what constitutes legitimate repentance chuva as you've so eloquently said and that's a whole discussion which i think is really really important but it does get me down the whole path of thinking like oh are we now going to ban roald dahl books and does shakespeare now get taken off or merchant of venice get taken off the books in jewish settings as well like this intersection between anti-semitism and popular culture is not a new thing but it is interesting seeing it playing itself out today but the conversation is not complete without me asking you the one question that I ask all of my guests on Adapting, for you to nominate one educator in your life who has been transformative for you. So who would that be? My educator would be uh, the late, great Avi West. Avi was a uh, Jewish educator extraordinaire in the greater Washington, D.C. Jewish community, um, was a tremendous mentor of mine. The takeaways that I have for him are innumerable, but approaching everyone as a learner leader with humility, with wisdom, um, and with the absolute best of humor. Samantha, thank you so much for being part of today's episode of Adapting. I have found it to be a really illuminating conversation, taking us on a journey of many of the issues that we are speaking about, some of which we're not actually speaking about as well. And I found it to be really helpful in getting an understanding of what it's like to be talking about anti-Semitism and to not be talking about anti-Semitism in certain parts of today's society. Today's episode of Adapting was produced by myself, Dean Nissenbaum, and Miranda Lapidus. The show's executive producers are Karen Cummins and Nessa Lieben, and our show is engineered and edited by Nathan J. Vaughan of NJV Media. If you enjoyed Adapting this season, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and even better still, share this episode with a friend or with a friend of a friend as well. To learn more about the Jewish Education Project, please visit our website at jewishedproject.org, where you can learn more about our mission, history, and staff, as well as some of the recent programs that we have put online about anti-Semitism and related issues, and also be sure to link and have a look at our Educator Portal, which has a whole lot of resources about anti-Semitism and other issues as well, because we should all remember that Jewish life is not just about the oys, but also about the joys. We're also a proud partner of UJA Federation of New York, and today is as good a day as any to thank them for all of the support they continue to give us. Thank you all for listening to today's conversation.